One of the most common objections to Christians bringing the morality of the Bible into politics is the idea that somehow the public square should not prefer one worldview or religion over another, but should instead be neutral. Jesus addressed this issue of neutrality when he told his disciples in Matthew 12:30, He who is not for me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. The very idea that we, as followers of Christ, can peacefully coexist with a pagan world system is refuted by the Lord himself. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Tragically, some Christian leaders prop up the idea of neutrality in the public square. This viewpoint expresses the essence of antinomianism, that the righteousness of one's conduct can be divorced from the moral law of God, or that one's political views can be divorced from one's theology. In truth, the only option besides a biblically-based society ruled by the law of God is a pagan society ruled by lawlessness. There is no neutral ground. The myth of pluralism is the number one fallacy which undermines the social ethic of the modern Christian conservative movement. Our vision for America has become truncated by an anti-law position. The Word of God is clear on one thing. The moral law of God is the standard, not natural law, not pluralism, not what man thinks is right in his own eyes. The Bible provides the vast majority of laws needed to govern a society. Those it does not directly define, it addresses in principle. Although we may not always agree on the interpretation, we should agree on the Bible and the law of God as the standard. We asked our panel of experts to comment on the myth of neutrality. What about the idea that the civil government should remain neutral and recognize that we live in a democratic, pluralistic society? If there is one truth, frustrated pastors in this hour would major in on, center on, focus on, worry about everything else after the victory start rolling in. If there's one major truth they need to begin to preach about and preach on, it would be this. Neutrality is a myth. There is no such thing as neutrality. God did not design the fabric of this universe to allow for neutrality. There's not one atom in this whole universe that can claim neutrality. Jesus was very clear in this. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There is no neutrality. Uh, this is a winner-take-all battle. It's either going to be the disciples of Jesus Christ in time in history who are out there leading the fight for righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost and doing it in the public square, which will produce the peace we're all after. Or it's going to be the disciples of Molly Yard, Margaret Sanger, and Joseph Stalin that are out there doing that. The feminist is not neutral in her worldview or in her apologetic. The humanist is not neutral in what he does and says. Uh, the humanist, Teddy Kennedy, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, they are not neutral. It is time for the church to wake up and realize this issue.
We are the largest single institution within the confines of the contiguous 48 states. There are more people in America who profess Christ. Some estimates have said 40 million. Some are as optimistic as 65 million. We are the largest single institution on this earth or in this nation who says that we believe in Christ. At the same time, we are the most irrelevant and most impotent. Why is that? We have forgotten that truth. There is no neutrality. If homosexuals who comprise less than 5% of this nation, who are without the Holy Ghost, without the Holy Scriptures, without the patriarchs, without the oaths, without the promises, can turn this nation ethically and morally on its ear in the space of 25 years, what could 40 million Christians moving under the power of the Holy Ghost and with reformed orthodoxy undergirding them, what could we do? We could win, and we could win quickly. There is no neutrality. If we could learn that, if the pastors of America would simply learn that, the battle would be over inside of three months. Now, there is a very, very strong, powerful religious left in America. And uh, it, it's odd that people would uh, be bemoan and bewail the influence of prominent evangelicals in, in the marketplace of ideas, but we, we never seem to hear complaints about uh, the Reverend Jesse Jackson or the Reverend uh, Martin Luther King, um, the, the, uh, the Reverend Jim Wallace and, and others from, from a, a more liberal perspective. Uh, the fact is, is that, that people of faith have things to say in the public arena and to exclude uh, one or another uh, because of an ideological bias is, is really pretty absurd and ultimately undercuts uh, the whole argument of humanism and, and liberalism in our day. All throughout the scriptures we see that uh, one of the first impulses of a flagrant sin um, manifested in a culture is to find some justification for it in the church or among religious leaders. We see it with the minor prophets. They were chided for not coming alongside uh, the violators of the standards of justice and, and blessing them. Uh, sinners are always looking for chaplains uh, for their sin. And uh, so today, the advocates of abortion on demand, of homosexual rights, of, uh, of the transformation of our culture into a kind of secular paradise, uh, are always beckoning to, to the religious to come alongside and to bless their efforts. As a teacher and a pastor, uh, everything starts with who is God and who is his son Jesus Christ. And the first thing people need to do is to learn of the authority of Christ. And we have this picture of Christ as this meek, mild, which he was in some sense, but this meek, mild uh, fellow who wants everybody just to get along, which is, again, worldliness, uh, when the reality is, is that Christ was a revolutionary. When Pilate said, are you a king, Jesus didn't say. When he said, my kingdom is not of this world, he didn't mean, so Pilate, don't worry about it. This, this has nothing to do with you. You just go about your business. You go ahead and destroy the world. I'll be back 2,000 years later and I'll straighten it out then. Meanwhile, I'm going to be doing my thing up in heaven. That's not what he's saying. His kingdom is of this world. This is the man who said the gates of hell will not prevail against him and his church and his gospel. When Jesus says, I have all power, I have all authority. When the God the Father says in, in Psalms, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, we are to believe that's going to happen. Doesn't mean it's going to happen soon doesn't mean it's going to happen here, 
but it means it's going to happen. And so we need to have uh, a more generational covenantal understanding where I'm not building uh, Christ's kingdom for myself. I'm trying to continue to lay bricks down for my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. I'm trying to raise up godly young men and women. That's the most important thing I can do for the kingdom of God. Now, in the meantime, in order for me to have the freedom to do that, I will invest some time, uh, not a great deal of time, but I'll invest some time engaged in uh, political action. Uh, you know, my cry to Washington is, I just want to be left alone. I'm not asking you to, to, to teach my kids to pray in your government schools. I'm not asking you to feed me, to get me a job, to do any of that stuff. I just want to be left alone. I, I spend a fair amount of time, again, trying to get people left alone uh, in the uh, a movement called the separation of school and state, uh, where we argue with great uh, vigor that the problem is not that, you know, whether or not we have religion in, in government schools, the problem is what religion are we going to have? And our solution is not we want ours. Our solution is get rid of the government schools because you cannot do education in a neutral way. Uh, and we see the fruit of it uh, in, in the government schools we have right now. So. We want uh, all of the Christians to think Christianly about all things. And, and again, this is not a bias. This is, we believe, a reflection of reality. We can't be relativist and say, well, it seems to us that God made the world. We've got to say, God made the world. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to go uh, put people who deny that in stocks. But it does mean that, that, that we, we have to recognize politically what is the function of the state. And it's my conviction that what the scripture teaches about what the function of the state is won't be a problem for those who deny the truth of the Christian faith. Because what we want it to do, it is God's minister for justice. We want the state, according in my understanding of what scripture teaches, to protect life and property. You know, there are many organizations today like the ACLU and People for the American Way and, and Americans United for Separation of Church and State and others who are attacking Christianity and seeking to inhibit its influence in the public uh, sector. And in so doing, they are really uh, removing the foundation for the freedom and liberty they have to do that. And what they are doing is very similar to one of the early founders of America, Thomas Paine, did. Probably about the only one that you could find that did something like this, where he in his later years began to write some things against Christianity. And he asked Benjamin Franklin to read it and comment on it. So Franklin read it, and uh, who he was not known as one of the most orthodox of our founding fathers. And he told Thomas Paine, I wouldn't publish this for anything, because you must recognize that you are spitting against the wind that you are beating your mother because it was Christianity that produced in you the virtue that you acknowledge is necessary for a free government to exist. But you think that that virtue can be produced by man's own ability, but it's really Christianity that has produced that virtue. And so today we have many of these organizations like Thomas Paine that are beating their own mother, that they are putting to death that which nurtured life within them from the very beginning. The pluralism of early America was a Christian pluralism. 
There were many different sects of Christianity that could be seen throughout the colonies and that the uh, amazing thing that occurred when we joined together as a nation that you have the uniting of all these different sects of Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Episcopalians and Quakers and Baptists and others joined together for a common vision or common cause. And they could do that because of the unifying factor of Christianity that predominated the individual states up until the time of forming a union. The whole notion that a culture can be religiously neutral is preposterous. It's not only preposterous, it's disingenuous. The most rudimentary driving forces in a culture are religious in nature. They are those mystical, uh, uh, elemental principles that govern thinking, that govern values, that govern concepts of virtue, basic understandings of right and wrong, good and evil. There is no such thing as a religiously neutral culture. Nor, nor is there any such thing as a morally neutral culture. So let's, let's put that aside and say what is really being said. And that is, it's not a question of whether there will be morality or not, whether there will be religion or not. It is only whose morality, whose religion will prevail. The, the very concept of culture has in it the, the ultimate view of the cosmos, the meaning of life, the origin of all things, uh, the, the, how things work, etc., etc. Those are religious concepts. So we're either going to have a godly culture or an ungodly culture. Why did the Jews come to America in uh, in the 17th century because they knew that in a Christian land a culture informed by Christianity they would be safe because in a world where God is the ultimate authority despots uh, power mongers uh, dictators have no authority because they are subject to a higher authority the authority of God. They are all held accountable to the same law as everybody else. This is what informed their thinking on moral absolutes. And in fact, they are codified, even in the uh, Constitution itself, where reference is made to Sunday as the Sabbath day. It's very clear that the founders understood what law they were held accountable to and what law all of the laws they would fashion uh, would be uh, ultimately accountable to. This is not a morally neutral land. If the Quran, if the Vedas, if some uh, other pagan literature had informed our founders in their thinking about this republic that they were shaping and crafting, we would be living in a very different world.
Well, I, uh, I have a problem understanding what the difficulty is in looking to the law of God for a norm for civil polity. The difficulty that I have is, if we're Christian, let's not talk about what a non... We know non-Christians don't particularly love God. They don't love what he has to say. But Christians love the Lord. They, they know Jehovah. They know his goodness. They see his mercy. They know his wisdom. They know that they don't know everything, but they know someone who does know everything. Let's start with that, that God knows everything. Now let's go back to a, an idea that we find in the Old Testament. Eden, we lost it through the sin of our first parents. Now God brings a whole nation of people out of bondage. Pretty bad contrast here. I mean, stark. Bad isn't stark. Bondage, and he's going to bring them into the glorious freedom of the children of God on earth if they do everything he says. He says it over and again. If you do what I tell you in this land, you're going, essentially you're going to have Eden back. It's going to be glorious. There's going to be rain. There's going to be fruit. There's going to be prosperity. There's going to be food. There's going to be people. You won't even have diseases. You're going to be, you're going to be so happy if you do what I say. Now, do we believe that that was the case? Do we believe that it was the case because he would do continued supernatural miracles? Or rather because in the law, God was giving his people the keys to living on earth. I think that's not too big a jump to say God gave them the law in love. In fact, Deuteronomy is the book to read on this because over and again he says, I love you. That's why I'm giving you this law. It's not because I'm setting you up. I'm not looking to trap you. I'm giving it to you because follow this and that's the way. Okay, now let's bring us to today. We become Christian. Our neighbor becomes Christian. Our neighborhood becomes Christian. What happens? Even a whole state becomes Christian. Even, in fact, a whole nation. And then we look to each other, we say, I wonder how we should rule our lives. What laws should we have? Now, God has spoken already. He's given a whole body of laws in history to a people that he loved and adopted as his own, that he liberated, not to put them in bondage, but to keep them in freedom. Doesn't it make sense that we should go to that law and apply ourselves to see how it applies in our circumstances today. There'll be difficulties. Their culture was highly agrarian. Ours is highly technological. There are other big differences between us and Israel. But in principle, we should expect that given the wisdom of God, we can find in His law, in His word, those governing ordinances which would lead to maximum freedom, maximum peace, and even maximum prosperity. Prosperity doesn't ha happen through manipulating God or playing games, hitting the right keys on the keyboard to get a, a result. It happens by having our Father in Heaven tell us what to do, we, tell, we do what He says, and then in time He blesses us. Probably the greatest evidence of humanism's collapse and the reactionary statist uh, uh, hand being felt is in the former monopoly um, that we call public education. And public education is uh, no such thing. It's government indoctrination. Uh, after all, whether it be Hitler or Stalin or Mao, you always try to grab hold of the next generation to perpetuate your rebellion. Now, as the public school system on a number of different fronts, first academically, is beginning to collapse, Secondly, economically, people are no longer voting for levies. 
and third because it's being more and more centralized in Washington DC and centralization is never an answer any businessman could tell you that if, if, if the public school uh, elitists definitely wanted to succeed they would not want to centralize but that's what they're doing as these things begin to happen you're seeing more and more individuals leave the public school system either for parochial schools private schools or to homeschool. And by the way, the correct reason for homeschooling is not simply to say, I don't like the quality of education in the government-run school system. It's to say that the government has no authority, whatever, over your children. And you are the one that is ultimately responsible. And so, as this has happened, as more and more have homeschooled, as more and more are moving to the parochial schools, what's happening is a literal depopulation of the public system. And laws are being enacted at the state and federal level to destroy the freedom that parents have over their children. Homeschoolers think that they have fought most of the legal battles in the 1980s. Actually, they're going to see that their own success is going to breed a greater backlash by the state against their efforts. Because ultimately, the state believes, whether it be the local, the municipality, whether it be the state of Ohio or the state of Florida or the federal government, they believe that they own the children. And that is where the great backlash of a collapsing humanism is going to be felt. It's going to take courage. It's going to take conviction. It's going to take sound theology by Christian parents to not only resist the tyranny, but to fight for justice. This whole topic of the law of God begs the question, what is the duty of the Christian? Is my duty simply to evangelize? Or is my duty to be a light in every arena, every power base. Moreover, is my duty to take the crowned rights of King Jesus as his ambassador into education, into government, into the arts, into the media. Because if my duty does involve heralding his law in every arena, which I believe it does, then the church in America is failing radically today. If God is sovereign, if his law is true, then it is impossible for civil government to be neutral on issues of law. Because all law is based in some religious code. Jesus said you're either for me or you're against me. That would certainly apply to kings and princes. If the Christians who were alive in the 1770s behaved and believed like the Christians of today, there wouldn't be an America as we know it. You see, those Christians understood that it was a part of their Christian duty to resist tyranny, to fight for justice, to apply the law of God to cultural and political issues. I mean, we make up theological excuses why we shouldn't get involved. And it's interesting to note, 80% of all revolutionary literature was written by pastors. These guys weren't just political activists, they were involved in a revolution against the mightiest power that the world had ever seen. That was the kind of theology that undergirded them, that motivated them, that animated them. Would to God we could have a, a revival of that kind of religion in America today. Our Lord said, Occupy till I come. We are told that the kingdoms of this world must become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The Old Testament is rife with prophecies concerning the nations being under the Christ, the Messiah. Now this is clearly an important aspect of our faith. Some years ago, Weingarten 
wrote a, a book made up entirely of the texts in the Old Testament that predict the triumph to come in Christ, how all the nations shall be his. And Isaiah says, even in Egypt, as a type of the uh, uh, unregenerate world, five cities out of six will call upon the name of the Lord, an image of great victory. So if we are going to fight with an eye to winning, we've got to have a post-millennial faith. Now, you can go to heaven without it, but uh, you'll do better <laughs> here on this world, in this world and in the world to come, if you stand in terms of the fact that we are to bring everything into captivity to Christ. And our blessing will be all the greater in the world to come if we are successful at this. All our thinking is presuppositional. We begin with axioms of thought, premises that we believe, and we think in terms of them. As Christians, we should think in terms of the fact that God is, and all things must reckon with God and make an accounting to God. If we do not believe, we begin with the premise, God is not, and I am alone in this world. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It's survival of the fittest. And you live accordingly. So the world goes to hell in a handbasket. It becomes trashier. It becomes a place where it's dog-eat-dog. -dog. So ideas do have consequences. And to believe that we are the people of victory, that Christ is going to triumph, and only when all things are put under his feet will the last enemy, death, be destroyed. To the Puritans and many of America's founders, the covenant and the law of God were the obvious foundations of Christian social order. Covenant theology laid the groundwork for a political theory. Our founders believed that government and all societies came into being as a contract on the basis of God's eternal covenant. They held that the moral law of God must be the foundation for a society's laws and government. Civil governments are obligated to follow God's moral law. If they are not, then Christians have no real standard by which to influence legislation. What we experience as a nation in the next few years will largely depend on the faithfulness of the church. It will depend on modern Christians making the necessary paradigm shift away from the idea of religious neutrality in the public sphere and embracing the covenantal model of biblical government.